So if you would, please open up with me to our sermon text, which comes once again from the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 20. And we'll be doing half the chapter this week and the other half, Lord willing, next week. So we'll be looking today at verses 1 through 22. Hear now the word of the Lord, 1 Kings 20, verses 1 through 22. About that time, King Ben-Hadad of Aram, or perhaps of Syria, Aram is um, also we call this Syria. About that time, King Ben-Hadad of Aram mobilized his army, supported by the chariots and horses of 32 allied kings. They went to besiege Samaria, the captain of Israel, and launched attacks against it. Ben-Hadad sent messengers into the city to relay this message to King Ahab of Israel. This is what Ben-Hadad says. Your silver and gold are mine, and so are your wives and the best of your children. All right, my lord the king, Israel's king replied, all that I have is yours. Soon Ben-Hadad's messengers returned again and said, this is what Ben-Hadad says. I've already demanded you give me your silver, gold, wives, and children, but about this time tomorrow, I will send my officials to search your palace and the homes of your officials. They will take away everything you consider valuable. Then Ahab summoned all the elders of the land and said to them, look how this man is stirring up trouble. I already agreed with his demand that I give him my wives and children and silver and gold. Do not give in to any more demands, all the elders and the people advised. So Ahab told the messengers from Ben-Hadad, say this to my lord the king, I will give you everything you asked for the first time, but I cannot accept this last demand of yours. So the messengers returned to Ben-Hadad with that response. Then Ben-Hadad sent this message to Ahab, may the gods strike me and even kill me if there remains enough dust from Samaria to provide even a handful for each of my soldiers. The king of Israel sent back this answer. A warrior putting on his sword for battle should not boast like a warrior who has already won. Ahab's reply reached Ben-Hadad and the other kings as they were drinking in their tents. Prepare to attack, Ben-Hadad commanded his officers. So they prepared to attack the city. Then a certain prophet came to see King Ahab of Israel and told him, this is what the Lord says. Do you see all these enemy forces? Today I will hand them all over to you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Ahab asked, how will he do it? And the prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The troops of the provincial commanders will do it. Should we attack first? Ahab asked. Yes, the prophet answered. So Ahab mustered the troops of the 232 provincial commanders. Then he called out the rest of the army of Israel, some 7,000 men. About noontime, as Ben-Hadad and the 32 allied kings were still in their tents, drinking themselves into a stupor, the troops of the provincial commanders marched out of the city as the first contingent. As they approached, Ben-Hadad's scouts reported to him, some troops are coming from Samaria. Take them alive, Ben-Hadad commanded, whether they've come for peace or for war. But Ahab's provincial commanders and the entire army had now come out to fight. Each Israelite soldier killed his Aramean opponent and suddenly the entire Aramean army panicked and fled. The Israelites chased them, but King Ben-Hadad and a few of his charioteers escaped on horses. 
However, the king of Israel destroyed the other horses and chariots and slaughtered the Aramaeans. Afterward, the prophet said to King Ahab, get ready for another attack. Begin making plans now for the king of Aram will come back next spring. That ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we sit at the foot of it and we ask that you would would sow deep in our hearts and souls all of the things you want us to have come from this. Lord, plant in our hearts the truth of your word. May it begin to bear fruit even today. Lord, we pray you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand this. And Lord, that this would be perhaps a memorable passage for many, if not all of us, as we move forward in life. So Lord, we pray you would meet with us now. We pray it all in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we come back to our sermon series this morning in 1 Kings, and we arrive in the first of the last three chapters of the book of 1 Kings. And these final three chapters really form for us one coherent unit. And really the focus of these last three chapters are on King Ahab's failures and the Lord's faithfulness despite his failures. You see, big picture, if you wanna think about it this way, chapters 17, 18, and 19, the last three have been about Elijah with Ahab in the background. And now these last three are gonna be about Ahab with Elijah in the background. So Elijah was the focus in 17 to 19, ending with, with him passing the mantle to the next faithful man. And now Ahab is the focus in 20 to 22, and it will end with him through death, passing his mantle to the next unfaithful man, to the next unfaithful king. And that's where 1 Kings will draw to a close. We will then return very briefly to Elijah at the beginning of 2 Kings, and then we'll have an extended time in the story of Elisha. So that's kind of where we are, where we're going, big picture. Now, with that said, we begin the final part of Ahab's life with one of these great battles, one of the greatest battles of Ahab's time as king, the conflict between Israel and Aram. And Philip Ryken reminds us very well that Aram is the biblical name for Syria. And the Syrians and the Israelis have been perennial rivals since the dawn of their history. You see, even right now, Israel and Syria are still locked in war, just as they were in the days of King Ahab and King Ben-Hadad nearly 3,000 years ago. Chapter 20 in total is actually an account of one war fought in two battles spread a year apart. And we're gonna look at the first of those battles this week and Lord willing, the second of those battles next week. So for today, battle number one, we have two main points. Point number one, human wisdom and strength always brings unintended consequences. Human wisdom and strength always brings unintended consequences. And point number two, the Lord saves his people from all of their unintended consequences. The Lord saves his people from all of their unintended consequences. So point number one, human wisdom and strength always brings unintended consequences. We see it 
in the first 12 verses. And I think it's going to be helpful this morning to give just a little bit of an extended historical background to set the scene here because I think it makes sense of what's going on in chapter 20 for us well. And I will put a little plug in here. There is a book by Eugene Merrill called Kingdom of Priests. And if y'all have heard of that before, it's a really good book that gives kind of an account of biblical history and puts in it other historical information, other pieces that we know that help inform the things that are going on. So some of what follows has come from his insight. But as we look at this, in the days of Elijah and Ahab, there were some socio-political things going on in the Middle East that really impacts verse, or chapter 20. And let's look at it from King Ben-Hadad's perspective in Aram, which we call Syria. So that's the way we're gonna look at this. If, if you were in Syria at this time, if you were King Ben-Hadad, what's going on in the Middle East, okay? Well, for Ben-Hadad in Syria, they had on one side of them a massive empire beginning to emerge. And it would be the kingdom of Assyria. Right, so different than Syria, but the kingdom of Assyria. And if y'all are familiar with Assyria, we're gonna read all about Assyria in 2 Kings. All right, but this is Assyria beginning to emerge. That's one major world power on the one side of King Ben-Hadad. On his other side, King Ben-Hadad now has a very worrisome alliance that is beginning to form between Israel and Sidon. All right, we see that through the marriage of Israelite King Ahab and now his Sidonian wife Jezebel. Okay, so for Syria, they're caught right here in the middle between an emerging world power, the kingdom of Assyria, and this budding alliance between Israel and Sidon. Now, this is not just a historical note, by the way. This isn't just a history lecture, because think about this. It seemed right in the eyes of Israelite King Ahab and his father to secure what they thought would be a level of worldly security by aligning themselves with the Sidonians and thus having Ahab take Jezebel as his wife. Now we've seen how awful that was from a religious perspective, right? Because what does Jezebel bring into Israel? Baal worship in a more intense way than ever before. And we've just read all about that in chapter 17 to 19. So from a religious perspective, that was bad. But we now see that even from a political perspective, it has been bad. His worldly wisdom has only brought him greater worldly problems. You see, his effort to align Israel with the Sidonians has not only brought Baal worship into Israel in a more perverse way, but it's also brought the eyes of Syria directly upon them, right? His worldly wisdom that he thinks is going to give him security by forming this alliance has only brought the eyes of Syria upon them. And so now with that background, we see that this war is impending. There is now an impending conflict, war against a massive army made up of 32 allied kings under the leadership of Ben-Hadad. And all the while, this massive world power, Assyria, is sitting in the wings, waiting and watching to see what's gonna happen. So with that said, I think this makes sense of King Ben-Hadad's demands in chapter 20. You see, he is nervous about what's happening. 
Hence, verse 1, he has formed an alliance now of 32 local kings and all of their forces. And he goes from there to strut in against the people of God, and he demands that they become a vassal state underneath them. All right? That is almost certainly what that first demand means. Right? I demand you give me all your silver, gold, your women, and the best of your sons. That's almost certainly what that means. Now, why would King Ben-Hadad want to make Israel a vassal state? Well, think about this. He is afraid of what this massive emerging empire is going to do. You see, this is ultimately how he is preparing for battle against Assyria. If he is going to go into a huge war, what is he going to need? He's going to need gold and silver. He's going to need women to bear children and provide supplies. And most of all, he's going to need young men to go out on the front lines of that battle against Assyria. So this is King Ben-Hadad's preparation for this upcoming battle against Assyria. He is attempting to subjugate Israel as a vassal state so that they will provide all the resources and all the manpower for the Syrian war machine against Assyria. Okay, so that's kind of the socio-political piece going on. Now, what does Ahab say to this request? He says, that's fine with me. No battle back, no words. He says, that's fine. He is willing to be subjugated by Syria to become the manpower and resources for the upcoming war because it at least delays his impending war. He is willing to sacrifice the Northern Kingdom's economic future and all the women and all the young men in his country just so he doesn't have to go to war just yet. We see the true cowardice of this King of Israel who sees his people as a bargaining chip and not a people to protect. By the way, a true leader, a true godly leader is one who does not see his people as a bargaining chip, as a negotiation tool. He sees them as who they are, a people who he has been charged to protect. That is who a godly leader is, which is certainly not Ahab. Now, sensing that cowardice from Ahab, King Ben-Hadad goes a step further, doesn't he? He makes this second request. You see, his first demand is that they would become a vassal state with the implication that he's not gonna take anything right now. They just need to be ready to give everything when the time comes. But then King Ben-Hadad in his drunkenness gets greedy and says, actually Ahab, you know what? In addition to that, we're just gonna go ahead and come into your country right now. And we're just gonna come in and take everything you hold valuable to you right now, this day. And it's at this point that things have gone far enough, even for a coward like Ahab. He sends word back that Israel will be their vassal state, but Syria cannot just come plunder their land as if they've already been defeated. Now, before we move on, I wanna pause here, just kind of look big picture from Ahab's perspective now, okay? We talked about Ben-Hadad, what about Ahab? What should Ahab have done at this point? Well, you see, he has only made things worse by the human decisions he's made. His decision to align with the Sidonians has not only brought Baal worship, but it's also made them look like a threat 
to Syria. His human wisdom has only made things worse for his nation. He is a political man who has tried to use his wisdom and his craftiness and what he might think is strength in order to secure things in his country. But what that has turned out to do is to actually make them look like a threat. His human wisdom and strength and decisions have only made things worse. Likewise, let me ask y'all, have you ever tried to do things that you thought were wise or crafty from a human perspective? And then somewhere down the line, you realize your own human efforts have just made things harder for you. Maybe you took a job chasing money without much concern for the spiritual life of your family. And a few years down the line, that comes crashing down on you. Maybe you got married to a person with very little consideration for their spiritual life or for your own. And now during the hard times of your marriage, you found that there isn't any ground that the two of you can commonly stand on to move forward with. Maybe you enjoyed a season of sin, believing that sowing your wild oats was just part of growing up and that one day you would come back to the Lord, but now you've woken up and found yourself regretting 90% or more of where your life has ended up. And you realize your faith, in a sense, has been derailed. Maybe you've just stubbornly pressed forward with a hard heart in places that you know you should have turned to go the other way. And far from finding your heart softer, you're now just seeing your heart more hardened than you could have imagined. And there are a million other examples. You see, that's where Ahab is right now. And what he should have done is to run to the Lord, to pursue him at all costs, to repent of his sins, the sins that have only brought greater hardships into his life, to plead with the Lord for help. That's what he should have done. And brothers and sisters, when you find yourself face to face with the unintended consequences that have arisen in your life from decisions you made out of human strength and wisdom and effort, then that is what we should do. When we see where those foolish decisions or unwise decisions have ended up, we should see them for what they are, decisions we made without a concern for the Lord as much as it was for our human strength and effort. And when we arrive at that place, we just run back to the Lord. We just ask him to make straight the paths that we have made crooked and to help us, to deliver us. Because you can be sure that whenever you do things out of your own human strength or wisdom, there will always be unintended consequences. And let me say that one more time. And children, this is a helpful thing for you to hear early on in life. Whenever you do something out of what you think is right, your own human strength and wisdom, you can be sure there will always be unintended consequences on the other side. And when those times come, we need to run to the Lord, which of course leads to our second point this morning. Point number two, the Lord saves his people from all of their unintended consequences. We see this in verses 13 to 22, but I wanna say one thing from the outset. Of course, Ahab does not do what we just said. We do not read in this passage about Ahab running to the Lord, but we do still read about the Lord coming to rescue his people anyways. 
And that's why our sermon last week was so important because what we saw last week was a shift in eras. Remember, Elijah passed the mantle to Elisha and Elisha's name means God saves. And in doing so, what God has declared is that now this is an era of salvation. Now I am coming to save my people. So with that in mind, the Lord is not rescuing his people in response to wicked King Ahab who didn't run to the Lord. He's doing it in response to his own covenant promises where he has promised to never leave nor forsake his people. And there are 7,000 such people, at least in the Northern Kingdom at this time, who are his people. So let me say, brothers and sisters, in 2024, let us not fret over national leaders we may or may, may have in the future who are wicked. Because those 7,000 such people in the Northern Kingdom are dealing with unintended consequences that they've done nothing to bring about, right? The unintended consequences are because of their wicked leaders. So for us, likewise, we never need to fret if our national leaders are wicked. And I think that's important to say. Sure, we should mourn that fact. We should lament that fact if it is a reality. But we never need to fret over that fact. Of course, we would always desire our national leaders be holy. We would rather them trust the Lord. And we know that the more wicked they are, the more they follow their own human wisdom and their own human strength, the more brutal unintended consequences we will have to live with in our nation and in our world. And yet we can be certain God saves his people from all unintended consequences that come our way. Whether it's our fault, or as we see in our passage today, the fault of our leaders. Either way, God saves. And that is what he is doing here. We see that God sends a prophet to Ahab to give him the word of the Lord. And the word is that God is going to hand their enemies over to them. In essence, God is going to come to their rescue and deliver them from these 32 kings and all of their troops who are unified underneath King Ben-Hadad of Syria. He's not doing it in response to Israel's repentance. He's not doing it in response to a king who seeks him. Rather, he is doing it because he has declared that this is an era of salvation in the Northern Kingdom. And brothers and sisters, we live in the era of salvation in Jesus Christ. May we never forget that. But it's important that Ahab and his officials know that it is the hand of God that is going to save them. You see, their own human wisdom and strength is what got them into this mess. So they need to know that that's not what's going to get them out of the mess. They need to see that it is the Lord who's going to deliver them so that they might be called to turn from their own human strength and wisdom. And that's why when Ahab asks, how is God going to do this? The answer he gives them is that it will be from these provincial commanders. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's a little bit of a tricky Hebrew phrase and I really like the way the ESV puts it. Some of y'all are probably looking at the ESV right now. It reads, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the district. You see, as Delroth Davis says, these young fellows may not have been military trained at all. 
God is coming and saying, he is going to save Israel, not by their own human strength, not by their own human wisdom, but he is gonna save them by these young men, these young men, servants of these provincial leaders. And these young men are certainly inexperienced. The Hebrew is very clear about that. These are meaning inexperienced people. And it could even mean that they're not trained at all. And of course, why is God using them? Because he is gonna prove he is the one that is going to rescue them. Yet another reminder that it will be the Lord's wisdom, not ours, that will get them out of this mess. And by the way, don't you and I need this as a reminder too from time to time? Don't we need the Lord to remind us sometimes that he is the one we should trust in? Not our own human strength, not our own human wisdom. We are blessed whenever he delivers us from the hard circumstances in our life and when he does it in no part due to our human strength and wisdom. You see, so many of us in here are wired to think that we need to make our own destiny, that we need to try to lift ourselves up by the bootstraps, that we need to be the one to take the bull by the horns if we wanna succeed in life. And then in this line of thinking, you hear the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. By the way, that is as unbiblical a belief as you could have. God helps those who cannot help themselves. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we have peace and rest in our souls. Now, of course, we need to work hard. We need to be dedicated to our callings, but we never do so in a way that trusts in our own human wisdom or strength to get ahead in life. And here's why, think about this. Can any of us see one single day into the future? Of course not. And even if we could, are we in control of that day in the future to where we can make things work a certain way? Of course not. So whenever we make decisions in our own human strength and effort, it will inevitably bring about unintended consequences. Yet when we trust in God, we are trusting in the one who not only sees all the days ahead of us, but the one who is actually in charge of all of the days ahead of us. So there will never be in God's economy an unintended consequence when we trust in the Lord. There will only ever be God's intended providence that brings salvation into the lives of his people. And I'll say that again. There will never be an unintended consequence when we trust in the Lord. There will only ever be God's intended providence that brings salvation into the lives of his people. And that's what plays itself out the rest of our passage. We see that King Ben-Hadad is a drunkard. In his drunkenness, he gets greedy and he goes after more than just asking Israel to be a vassal state. In his drunkenness, he utters this same curse against himself that Jezebel uttered against herself when she wanted to have Elijah killed. In his drunkenness, he haphazardly positions his troops in a way to demand a war, but not in a way to actually fight the war. And then most incredibly, in his drunkenness, he gives this bizarre command to his troops to take every Israelite soldier alive. Right, think, of, think about that. In his drunkenness, he gives this bizarre command. 
Could you imagine getting a command from your commander with an army approaching you and he says, you're to take all of them alive? Well, of course, that leads to the unintended consequence in Ben-Hadad's mind of their defeat. It actually paves the way for the Lord's armies to win. So why does Israel win this battle? Here's our million dollar question. Why does Israel win the battle and not Syria? Well, it isn't because either of their leaders is faithful. They are both foolish. They both trust in their own human strength and wisdom. They both bring devastating consequences upon their own nations. Neither leader trusts in the triune God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thus, we do not commend either one of these leaders, not Israel's and not Syria's. But we do look and see God's providence. We see God's provision. We see God's faithfulness to the promises that he has made to never leave nor forsake his people. There are 7,000 in Israel who have never bowed the knee to anyone other than the Lord God Almighty. God has a remnant of his people that are still in the Northern Kingdom and as such, he will save them. So the Israelite army crushes the Syrians. King Ben-Hadad escapes, hangover and all. And then as the incredible victory concludes, the prophet comes back to Ahab and he gives them this warning. He tells Ahab, get ready for another attack. Begin making plans now for the king of Aram will come back next spring. And that will be the battle, Lord willing, that we will look at next Sunday. But for today, let me ask this question. One of the most important questions I think this whole passage prompts us to consider. How should King Ahab make plans for this upcoming attack one year in the distance? This is pretty remarkable to be told a year out you are going to have a full tilt attack coming from this big threat to the north. So how should they make their plans? Well, the easy answer would be what? Right? Let's fortify our city. Let's get as many men trained up as we can. Let's make battle plans and get as much armor and weapons churned out as we can. Let's get this Israelite war machine kicked into gear. And I'll say... None of those things are necessary, necessarily wrong to do, I suppose. But if that is all they do, what are they doing all over again? They're just trusting in their human strength, wisdom, and effort. You see, I think there is an implicit call in verse 22 to faithfulness. I think it is a call for Ahab to consider what just happened, to consider what he contributed and what God contributed. All Ahab brought to the table was the mess he had gotten them into. And what God brought to the table was deliverance from that mess. So I think what this text is leading us to is that the best thing Ahab could be doing in the next year is to bring about a full reformation in the Northern Kingdom, to get rid of all the worship of foreign gods. Once again, to have Queen Jezebel executed. Right? Should he worry about this alliance with the Sidonians? No. All that's done is bring Baal worship into their land and brought the eyes of Syria upon their people. It's only made things worse. He should also begin sending his people to the temple in the southern kingdom to seek God's will and his provision for their life. In essence, it is a call for them to repent of their sins, 
to turn from trusting in their human strength and effort and to trust in the Lord God Almighty. You see, we read verse 22, me included, right? We, this is how I read it when I first worked through this. We read verse 22 and think initially the prophet is telling Ahab to get the Israelite war machine cranked up and to be ready with all the human strength and wisdom they could muster. But y'all, that absolutely cannot be what he means because everything in verses 1 to 22 has shown us how ineffective that is. And by the way, just a little precursor to next week, we're going to see this come up because one year later, after a full year of doing everything they could to crank up the Israelite war machine, look what verse 27 says. Israel then mustered its army, set up supply lines, and marched out for battle. But the Israelite army looked like two little flocks of goats in comparison to the vast Aramean forces that filled the countryside. You see, what we're gonna see is that in our human strength and effort, that is what they produce. More on that next week, but just notice this morning that everything they could produce in their human strength and effort amounted to being two flocks of goats compared to this massive army. So as we close, I wanna say this, these last four or five minutes. And as I say it, I will go ahead and warn you, it is either going to provoke your pride or it is going to bring peace to your soul. So prepare yourself to take to heart what I'm about to say, okay? I love y'all. So I wanna tell you the truth, something that is true for me too. We are not as great as our hearts want us to think that we are. We are not as impressive as our hearts want us to think that we are. We are not as wise or as strong as our hearts want us to think that we are. And hear me say this, if God has helped you in this life, it is not because you were so great to have helped yourself first. In our own human wisdom and strength, for every single problem, any one of us has ever solved, we have always brought about unintended consequences that we are still going to have to live with somewhere down the line, right? Think about that. Even our very best efforts, the very best decisions we make to solve one set of problems always bring about unintended consequences that will require considerably more work down the line. But y'all, that's just Genesis 3 isn't it? That is just, in particular, the curse on males. God tells Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What this means is that life in a sinful fallen world means that even our very best efforts, there will still be unintended consequences that happen. We do one thing, it solves one set of problems, but then there will inevitably be other sets of problems that come, up, that come from it. There will be thorns and thistles. Hence, we aren't as great or as impressive or as wise or as strong as our hearts want us to think that we are. Now, when we're prideful 
and we hear statements like this, it really hardens us in our hearts, right? But if we're soft-hearted, then let me say this, man, this is freeing because doesn't this just make sense of our lives? And because when we embrace this truth, here is what else we get to hear. Brothers and sisters, we are more loved than we can possibly imagine. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps those who know they can't help themselves. He loves to rescue us from all that threatens us, including all of the unintended consequences that arise in our lives every single day on account of either our own sins, the sins of others, or just simply the fact that we live life in a fallen world. So Ahab should have seen that there was nothing he could do to help himself against Syria, and that's okay. Because had he acknowledged that, that he would be able to turn and trust in the Lord to help him. And the same is true for us this morning. We should look at the challenges before us in life. And you know what we should think? We should think that there is nothing we can do in and of ourselves to perfectly meet every one of those challenges in such a way that there won't be unintended consequences down the line. And y'all, that's okay. Because when we acknowledge that fact, then we're free to turn and trust in the Lord who can help us. And by the way, if anyone ever wants to argue with you on this fact, I would ask them this. Death is the final challenge we must all meet, isn't it? And is there anything for all that we know in medicine, for all our human strength and effort, is there anything we can do to actually stand up against that challenge? Of course there isn't. Thus, everything in a world that is dying and passing away is ultimately just the same. So I pray that this week, here's what my hope is for us, that the Lord will search our hearts this week, that he would comfort each of us this week with the hard truth that our own human strength and wisdom will never be enough. We can never see far enough down the line to do things in such a way that we can avoid every unintended consequence. But when we recognize that, we can give it to the Lord and just ask him to be the one to lead and guide us in life. And y'all, that is what frees us from our pride and comes flooding in the peace that passes understanding in our hearts. And here is why. Because the one seated at the right hand of God the Father, reigning and ruling over everything right now, Jesus Christ, he is the same one who came to this world, who took the punishment for our sins on the cross and rose from the dead on the third day. So that when we trust in him, the ultimate final consequence we receive from trusting in him is salvation and life everlasting. Victory over the final great enemy of all mankind, death itself. Something we cannot achieve on our own, but y'all, it's something that is available to each one of you today. So my prayer today is embrace the fact that anything we do in our own human strength and effort will produce unintended consequences, but that's good news when we acknowledge that because we can embrace our Lord who has lined things out and is in charge of all of human history.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you this morning for your word to us. And Lord, we acknowledge that even our very best efforts in this human, in, in, in life in this world, is going to produce thorns and thistles. Lord, we, we acknowledge that in our own human strength and effort, we can't even see a day ahead. And even if we could, we wouldn't know what to do with that. So Lord, we ask that you would free us from our pride that wants to think we have to do things in our own human strength and effort for you to bless us. Lord, help us to be freed from that and to just embrace trusting in you fully and completely for all of the areas of our life. Lord, we all have areas right now where we need you to apply that in our hearts. May you do so this very minute. We pray it all in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.